Well, last week we discussed Jesus' invitation to follow him, which I had a ton of fun doing with you in Mark chapter 2. One of my favorite stories is the story of Levi the tax man. Uh, So I loved doing that and, and talking about the fact that Jesus didn't hide the fact from any of us that there would be a cost involved if we choose to follow him. In fact, he told us that we ought to be sure to count that cost before we sign up to follow him because it would be costly to make that decision. Remember, make no mistake about it, that that salvation is free to you and that you don't have to earn it. It's the gift of God, lest anyone should boast, that it's received by grace through faith. And though free to you, it cost him, Jesus, absolutely everything to offer to you. But please hear me, although we don't have to earn it, Jesus didn't hide the fact that it may cost you to receive and embrace it. And following Jesus uh, is going to cost us different things. And what Jesus does here in the little passage that we'll tackle today, it's just he's going to turn our attention to two things that are costly. One that I would argue is more difficult than the other. And the two things that are costly are fasting and resting. Two things that he introduces us to here, and and both are costly, but I think one is even more difficult than the other. And full disclosure, I, no surprise if you've been here for a while, but as I studied and prepared, I got so excited and had way too much going, so I've cut this in half, and so we're just going to tackle one of these two topics today of fasting and resting from Mark chapter 2. But quite possibly, I think the only spiritual discipline that's more difficult for the church in America in the 21st century, for us... More difficult than than giving to God financially or embracing self-denial and fasting or even more difficult, I think it is difficult in the 21st century church in America for people to submit their sexuality and their sexual expression in obedience to God. I think more difficult than all of those things is choosing to rest. I think it's crazy hard. I think it's quite possible that we would classify it, if we really think about it, as as the 21st century American church, as it being the biggest challenge that we, the church, have when it comes to our choice to embrace the decision to follow Jesus is to follow a rhythm of work and of rest, especially in a community that's not just as expensive as ours, but is as successful and driven as ours is in San Diego, which I guess in some ways, to voice that, it's kind of pathetic that this is like a huge challenge for us when there's other parts of the world where the church, followers of Jesus, are facing persecution. But the reason this is so difficult for us is this is counter-cultural, and this is is counter-intuitive for us as human beings to live in a rhythm of work and rest. In our culture, and even there's a voice inside of us that tells us that it is unnatural for us to rest and to Sabbath. And so that's what I want to talk to you about today, is that idea of, of the Sabbath and of true Sabbath rest. And so I don't want you, as we start, because this is kind of a weird thing to talk about, which I I don't know how many of you have even uh, been to a church gathering where someone would teach about something like Sabbath in a proactive, positive way and ask you to consider what it looks like for you to follow a rhythm of work and of rest. But for us to do this, I don't want you to misunderstand my intentions uh, or me at all in, in doing this, because I think messages that just tell you to be good either damn you to your own pride or to despair to your own pride, because some of us can look around and find someone that we feel like we're doing better than they are. We're great uh, little Pharisees at heart. But for the rest of us to despair, because most of us recognize already how far short we, we come to our own expectations, much less the expectations we think that others have of us or even God does. 
And so my goal is not just to put pressure on you or tell you to be good, to be good or try harder. My goal is to encourage you to choose to follow Jesus even in areas that feel counterintuitive or costly to follow him in faith and obedience. And it sounds weird to say it or to hear myself say it, but it is a hard step in faith and obedience to God if we choose to embrace Sabbath rest. Here's some information I found pre-COVID that I was reminded of this last week, speaking to the importance of rest because of our issues with stress and anxiety. Uh, The American Health Institute of Stress notes that 75 to 90% of visits to primary care physicians are for stress-related complaints. An international investigation reveals that people who are unable to effectively manage their stress have a 40% higher death rate than their non-stressed counterparts. A Harvard study I found said that it shows that people who live in a state of high anxiety are four and a half times more likely to suffer sudden cardiac death than non-anxious individuals. Now these, these are statistics from back when the world was normal, when, the, when life was more simple than it's become in the last year or so. Let me read to you some excerpts from some articles I came across just this week. This one was from the Kaiser Family Foundation. They conducted a poll where they said that nearly half of Americans report the coronavirus crisis has harmed their mental health. According to the CDC website, so far in 2021, over 40% of American adults would classify themselves as actively having symptoms of anxiety or depressive disorder. That's an increase of over 10% from where they reported things to be in June of 2020. So at the peak of the COVID crisis, when still so much was unknown, that that we're even more anxious and showing more signs as a country, symptoms of anxiety and depression now, technically as we're emerging outside of a COVID era, than we were at the peak of it. The American uh, Psychological Association reports this in 2021, 28% of Americans report that they have incredibly high levels of stress right now leaving nearly 50% of those who answered the poll said that they have moderate to high levels of stress, leaving just over a quarter of Americans to respond and say that their stress levels are currently manageable. Three quarters of Americans are saying, this is out of control for me right now. For dads with young kids, nearly half, 48%, said that they're now drinking more alcohol to cope with that stress. Nearly half of mothers who still have children at home for remote learning reported that their mental health has worsened. There's not a surprise there, is there? (laughs) Also not surprising, 30% of fathers, compared to 50% of moms, who still have children at home, say the same. Which tells you that more moms are doing the home education than the dads because the dads are less stressed about it. It's like when you have young children or babies and someone says, well, how's the baby sleeping? And the dad makes the mistake. You only do this once as a young dad where you go, baby's sleeping great. And that's when your wife steps in and says, no, they're not, and neither am I. And you feel like a moron. Parents were more likely than adults without children to have received treatment from a mental health professional in the last year. Nearly half of those who polled, 49%, said they feel uneasy about adjusting to in-person interaction once the pandemic ends. Okay, so track with me. It's not just that we're unhealthy and unhappy in our current situation. That's what all these statistics show me. It's that we're also surprisingly uneasy and uncertain about moving forward from our current situation. Because we've almost settled into it as much as we don't like it. Now it rattles us to feel like we're about to re-emerge from it. 
Listen, life in general is hard enough, but this last year has kicked us down hard to the ground. It's been exceptionally taxing on us as people. And then in addition to all the external things that are happening in so many of our lives, for many of us, our whole life and rhythm became this weird muddled mess in the last year or so because we sleep where we work, we eat at our desk at the dining table, and we try to relax and decompress in the same geographic physical locations where we're all of a sudden throughout the week meant to shift gears from feeling the pressure and expectation of our boss in those same spaces to now feeling it's our place to decompress. I've heard people say as the pandemic started, this is a forced Sabbath rest. That's what this is. That's what quarantine is. It's a forced Sabbath, and we all need a good break. And I get what they're saying, but I don't agree, and and you probably wouldn't either, that this has felt like a break. To experience Sabbath rest is more than just feeling like you're on house arrest. To experience Sabbath rest is separate from feeling like you're grounded. Or to experience Sabbath rest is, it's an intentional departure from your regular daily rhythm for the purpose of restoration and contemplation. That's what Sabbath rest is. It's an intentional departure from what your regularly scheduled life looks like for the goal of, for the purpose of restoration and contemplation. It's something mental health experts outside the Bible would would push on you and say, you need intentional rest in several areas. You need intentional rest physically and and mentally, emotionally, spiritually, socially, and sensory areas, and and with creativity. And failing to do so, mental health experts will say, it's going to affect your mental health, your disposition and mood, your ability to stay positive and upbeat. Even the depths of your creativity or problem-solving ability will be hindered without rest and Your underlying motivation or lack thereof will be affected by your unwillingness or willingness to embrace some rest. And the God of the Bible actually echoes those sentiments. They're concerned for you that you need to experience true rest, which rest means restoration. If it's real true rest, it restores us. And the Sabbath for us to do this is a bit of a polarizing Uh, conversation for us to be having because on one end of the spectrum are orthodox jews who in ancient times built a fence around the law the law what with defining what constitutes work when god says that you are to rest from your work once a week take a break from it well what's work and even in modern times they're still defining that saying well what's work well starting a fire is work And so turning the ignition in a car is work because it's starting a fire with a combustion engine. And and so you can't drive a car on the Sabbath. It's you you can't cook a meal because it would require that you'd start the oven or the stove or a microwave. And and that's not right because that's classified as work. If you've ever been to Israel and you stay in Jerusalem on the Sabbath, it's an interesting experience because the hotels are all of a sudden overrun with orthodox jews because they want to be good sabbath observers and not work and not drive and not cook and so instead they go to somewhere where someone else will serve you and do it for you where there's a sabbath elevator the shabbat elevator where it goes up and down opening its door closing it at every single floor if you make the mistake of getting on the wrong elevator you have a very long ride to get back to the 20th floor because no one's going to push a button because to push a button is breaking the sabbath it's working on the sabbath It's me trying to take a photo of someone on the Sabbath and someone yelling at me, no pictures, no pictures, because you're opening and closing something, a shutter, by taking that picture. And so you're breaking the Sabbath. You're you're defying the order and law of God. They've taken what God meant as a gift, and they've turned it into a weight and a burden. Now, that's on one side of the spectrum. Now, unfortunately, I think the American evangelical church, for many of us, we find ourselves 
on the other side of things so extreme where we've completely dismissed it. And I could use my own life as an example of this for years and years. It's an unfortunate and unhealthy example of this. You see, the American Evangelical Church often views this as part of the law given after the fall, like the curse came and, and sin brought this demand that God gives us. And however, this is the creative rhythm of work and rest was a part of the created fabric of nature and human existence from the beginning before the fall. Sabbath rest predates the fall. Remember, it's Jesus who said the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. You have a good God whose, whose first command to humanity was that they should subdue the earth, that they'd work with him in partnership. But his next command was, and then you should fill the earth, populate the earth. If you think God is, is wanting to ruin your life or not into joy or good things, one of his first commandments to all of humanity was fill the whole earth. He gave it as a gift, a relationship and love. And, and then think of it, the first day of mankind's existence was set aside as a gift to rest and reflect with God. So is the Sabbath really for today? I mean, it's one of the Ten Commandments. In fact, it's the only one of the Ten Commandments that many of us are dismissive of. Well, and maybe you could argue, well, I don't know that that commandment is really relevant for me, that I should feel the weight of it like a commandment, but please hear me, the gift of the Sabbath still stands today, as does its benefits, and the way that God has wired you to need it, of intentional restoration that the Sabbath gives. Now, our text, because that was my introduction, and it was just under 15 minutes, so I deserve a gold star today. Our text introduces us to the Sabbath. Look with me in your Bible, because Jesus is going to make some pretty profound statements regarding the Sabbath that you'll pick up on real quick. Chapter 2, verse 23, like I said, I had a longer message that I cut down, so I'll skip that first section about fasting. We'll hit it next week, but verse 23, now it happened as Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath that they went... Uh, that as they went, his disciples began to pluck the heads of grain. And the Pharisees said to him, look, why do they do what's not lawful on the Sabbath? But Jesus said to them, have you never read that what David did when he was in need and hungry? He and those who were with him, his companions, how he went into the house of God in the days of Abathar, the high priest, and ate the showbread, which is not lawful to eat except for the priests, and also gave some to those who were with him. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Therefore, the son of man is also Lord of the Sabbath. Now, Mark's narrative hop, skips and jumps to a grain field that Jesus and his friends are walking through. And it's kind of hysterical when you actually try to picture this because you have these uh, these religious leaders, the religious police of the day, acting like hyperactive paparazzi, hiding out, watching the disciples make their way through a grain field and, and noticing as they're spying on the disciples that they're grabbing little heads of grain off of the top of these, these plants, these shoots that are all around them. And as they're doing it, they're breaking the chaff off of it and they're chewing on it. They're eating it. And that's when the paparazzi stand up and blow their whistle about the party foul that Jesus' disciples are committing. But he and his friends did not break the Sabbath law. He did, however, and his friends, they did break their traditions, the religious leaders' traditions. You see, the Bible had commanded that, that we are to remember the Sabbath and keep it holy by not doing any work and allowing our whole household to cease from work. But a walk on the Sabbath is totally kosher. As was Jesus' disciples' uh, snack choice, the, the idea of grain on the go. They're not harvesting grain 
uh, harvesting the fields. They're just plucking single heads of grain as they walked. There are ten commandments in our Bible. If you look throughout the whole of the Old Testament, there are 613 laws that are given for us. And the religious leaders, they decided that they would build a fence around those. Like, let me protect those laws that, that, that we would not even get close to breaking them. So we'll build a whole bunch of rules around them to protect us from ever even getting close to them. There's a whole series of rabbinic teachings and traditions, the, the Talmud and the Mishnah, and they list over 1,500 commandments that they made up outside of the Bible to protect the commands of God, the expectations of God, to build a fence around it. The Talmud alone has 23 pages of Sabbath laws and expectations that are spelled out for you. In the ancient times, it was things like not starting a fire to be cooked or warmed by, or, or not sewing more than a single stitch on a torn garment, not untying a knot, however badly it drives your OCD to find a knot in something, it has to wait till the next day. It tells you not to spit in the dirt, lest it plow the ground in front of you. Instead, if you've got to spit, you spit on a rock. It tells you that you should not look in a mirror, lest you be tempted if you see a gray hair to pluck it out and you'd be guilty of harvesting on the Sabbath. It's insanity. What Jesus does in this little dialogue, though, is he drops three bombs on their whistleblowing. And the first is a story about David. In 1 Samuel 21, David is, is the story that Jesus is mentioning here. David's fleeing for his life from Saul. Now think about the imagery. David, who they revered as the true king of Israel, David is in that moment, in that story, he is the anointed king but he's yet to be the publicly recognized king over all of Israel. It's Jesus. It's a picture here. Jesus puts himself into this story because Jesus is, having been anointed from heaven, he is the rightful king, but yet to be publicly recognized as such, as the crowned king. But in David's story, he left in such a hurry because he's being pursued by Saul and his men left with him that they, they made no provision for their journey. And they get to the point where they are so weary, they're starving, and they reach the tabernacle and they go in and David and his, his companions, they eat the bread from the tabernacle that was only to be consumed by the priests. But what Jesus is saying is this, is, is now if you, the religious leaders... If you believe that David could violate this clear rule that God gave in order to feed his weary men because their lives meant more than just this showbread sitting there waiting for a priest to eat it, then why are you tripping out on me and my disciples breaking your silly rules, not heaven's rules? It's a story that he uses from the life of David to drop a bomb on their, their issues, their fence around the law. But the second bomb he drops is a reminder about the heart of the Sabbath itself. It's found at the end of that little passage we read when in verse 27, Jesus said, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. He gets right back to the, the core of it, the heart of it, that the Sabbath is a gift. God didn't make us just because someone needed to exist to comply to his demands. No, instead he gave a gift. He lovingly made us, and then he gave a gift to us of the Sabbath, of a break, of rest, of restoration. And the third bomb he drops here is about himself, where in verse 28, the last statement he makes there is he says, Therefore the Son of Man is also Lord of the Sabbath. Now who instituted, who ordained the Sabbath? Well, God did. And Jesus here is claiming to hold the authority that is God's alone. 
And he's also kind of poking fun at their little silly trivial rules that they've made, assuming that they're the Lord of the Sabbath that gets to say what's right and what's wrong and add to those rules. And commentators will agree that for Jesus to say he's Lord of the Sabbath is for him to say that he's the embodiment of what Sabbath rest is meant to be. What we are, had available to us in the, as Old Testament saints, what they had available to them as a single day of Sabbath rest, of internal, not just physical, but emotional and spiritual rest, that they had available to them once a week to set aside that time is something that we have available to us at all times in Jesus, that we will find our true unending rest in him, the Lord of the Sabbath. Okay, so here's where we're going to shift gears to practical, simple, and some, some of you, because of your tradition, how you've grown up, maybe you're going to have an internal pushback on this, and I just ask respectively, just consider it. I'm not saying I'm right. Uh, I'm just saying consider these things in your own heart, and then look in Scripture and talk through these things with the Lord, because I want to present to you, what about for us today, in the 21st century, the Sabbath? And I would say that this is, is fitting for some of you who are as young as middle school, for you to get in your own rhythm, what would it look like for me to do this? I would say all the way to the other side of the spectrum. And for some of you who are retired and like my schedule is wide open, but what would it look like for you to set aside intentional time? Maybe it's not even a whole day, but intentional time for you to rest and be restored. So let's talk then about the Sabbath. Again, real practical. There's four things that I think scripture presents for us that I just want you to kind of chew on and consider today about this idea of Sabbath rest. And the first thing is that scripture teaches me, number one, that I am created for a rhythm of work and rest. There's a rhythm. The way I'm created, I'm hardwired with a rhythm of work and of rest. Now, our 21st century, our culture praises busyness and workaholics. The rise and grind attitude is something we'll stand and applaud for. Very few people are pat on the back at times for saying, you know what you do well? You rest so good. Like, you take a break so hard, like, you've got this. Like, now we're, we're trained to answer the question of how are you with what? I'm good, just really busy. Or I'm just really tired. Those are typically our responses we give. How's it going? It's good. Things are good. Just really busy. It's because it almost makes us feel important. Okay, maybe this is just me. I can't speak for you. I can answer that way because it makes me feel important or significant as opposed to feeling like I come across lazy if I say anything less than I'm busy. Like, oh, I'm a little bit overwhelmed. I'm doing good, but man, it's been crazy. Work lately, it's insane. We throw those details in because a part of our culture seems to be hardwired, hardwired with this expectation of busyness and being a workaholic. In fact, I, I read something that was a while ago, and I remembered it and, and went digging for it and found it again. But anyways, it was something I found last year. It was an article entitled, The U.S. is the most overworked, developed nation in the world. Here's what they said. In the U.S., 76.15% of working adults work more than 40 hours a week. According to the International Labor Organizations, Americans work 137 more hours per year than Japanese workers, 260 more hours per year than British workers, and no surprises here, 499 more hours per year than French workers. 
For many of us, more work leads to more stress and a lower quality of life. Without time to unwind, to take care of home, spend time with loved ones, enjoy our hobbies, connect with our friends, generally live a more balanced life, stress is the number one cause of health problems, mentally and physically, and there are few things that cause us or stress us out on a consistent basis like our work does, especially when it takes away from all the other things that life has to offer us. Now, I, I can't speak for you, but I'll just tell you in my own life, what I've realized about myself is that busyness is sometimes a cloak that I use to cover my own insecurity. That busyness becomes this cloak that covers my own insecurity. But that's neither a healthy nor helpful practice in life. The problem is busyness and significance become too intertwined, and they're not meant to be. Busyness and significance sometimes are too closely linked, I would say. I think one of the beautiful things about me knowing Jesus and following him is that I have the opportunity to find my significance and security in Jesus. Not in my work. Not in what I accomplish. Not in any other thing. And because my significance and security are found in him, then I'm free to have healthier boundaries in my life in all of these other areas because busyness doesn't just have to be this cloak for all of my insecurities trying to tell myself that I'm significant and secure. No, instead, I'm freed from that push to be busy because I know I'm fully loved. No more for what I do or can do and no less for what I've done or even not done that I'm fully loved by God. You see, scripture teaches me that I'm created for a rhythm of work and of rest. In Genesis chapter 1, that rhythm starts where it tells you that God sees everything that he's made and all of it is very good. So the evening and the morning were the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth and all the hosts of them were finished. And on the seventh day, God ended his work which he had done and he rested. On the seventh day from all the work which he had done, then God blessed the seventh day and he sanctified it. He set it aside because in it he rested from all his work which God had created and made. Pretty amazing to think that when we look at what's the purpose of God creating humanity, well, the very first thing he has humanity do, their very first day of their existence, is that God wanted them just to sit with him and admire creation and what he had provided for them. He wanted them to enjoy being with him. That's beautiful. But if someone were to say, hey, explain to me, what's your life like? It's me slowing down to sit with God and admire what he's done. And and the beauty of what he's made are typically not a part of how we describe even what your weekend is like. But think about this for a moment. I don't think that God designed for the Sabbath is to be thought of synonymously with just isolation. Like I have to stop everything and isolate myself or God would have taken a break before creating humanity. And he would have said something like, hey, I realize you guys are gonna be a bit much and it's best if I take a break before you come because you're gonna ruin this break. Look, even at Jesus as an example of this. He he was with people on the Sabbath, not isolated and, and hiding out alone. In fact, Jesus tells us about The scriptures tell us about Jesus healing multitudes, but in the Gospels, there are at least 38 specific miracles that are recorded for us. Seven of those took place on the Sabbath day. You see, Sabbath is a personal choice, but I don't know that it has to be a private experience. I think it can be with other people. Listen, even if God, if even God rested, then I must. 
Now, the difference is God did not rest because he was weary, but because his work was complete. It was as if God paused for a moment to admire it. And I should rest because I do become weary. And because I do need to step back and and celebrate with God what he's doing in my life. I think there's this invitation in the creative pattern of Genesis for work and for rest. And some people laugh that off because, oh, come on, Trevor, I don't need this. I'm driven. I'm efficient. I'm made to work. I'll rest when I die. It's, It's pretty dumb because, well, you'll die sooner. So then, yes, in some ways... You will. You'll rest sooner than the rest, maybe, who, who will rest. But quoting from a book, it's entitled Zeal Without Burnout. Let me, let me tell you what the author said. He says, if you neglect rest, you are implicitly claiming an affinity with God that we mortals cannot claim. I like that. Listen, think about our cultural value system, though. This is where our culture so pushes against this idea of intentional rest, of rhythms, of work, and of rest. I mean, think about our cultural value system. What do we call someone who has lots of money but very little free time? Lots of money but very little free time. We'd probably call them successful. We would. What about someone, let's flip it on its head. What do we call someone who has no money but lots of free time? Unsuccessful, homeless, lazy. It's funny. We would probably define them as unsuccessful. And we would assume that they're lazy because in our value system, we would expect any rational person to trade their free time and for opportunity to monetize that time and make more money. And then if they make that kind of money, then they can afford to eat at those kinds of restaurants. Then they can afford to drive that kind of car. Then they can afford to live in that kind of neighborhood. But at some point in time, then you become a slave to all of those things where now you're working more just to pay off those high dollar tendencies or patterns or choices that you've made. So at what point in time do we step back and admit that our highest value in our culture has become something other than rest and time with the family? Because we've proven that we don't even think that way any longer. In the Bible, after delivering his people from bondage in Egypt, God steps in and promises, I will miraculously provide for you for that seventh day, but I'm going to require and trade for that that you take a rest on that seventh day. In fact, manna will come, quail will arrive, and I'm going to send enough so that you can gather enough so that it will last through that seventh day so that you can take a break, so that you can rest and reflect, so that rhythm of work and of rest can continue to happen. He will then reiterate that creative rhythm and say that you should rest on this seventh day, which, think about it, they just came out of Egypt, was a crazy foreign concept for them. 400 years, generation upon generation in Egypt... As slaves, they were conditioned to work without rest. So they would struggle to yield to the created rhythm that God was telling them, reminding them, no, this is how I've made you to function, though. In fact, in Exodus 16, the Lord will say to Moses, how long will you all continue to refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, I've given to you, it's a gift, the Sabbath. He reminds them, it's a gift that I've given you, that that you're missing out on. By Exodus 20, four chapters later, he takes the the invitation that was there, and he then emphasizes it to the point of making it a commandment for the nation of Israel. It's a part of the Ten Commandments. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Think about it this way. The Sabbath became a command for the people of God to combat the culture that an external Pharaoh established for them. 
400 years in Egypt with an external pharaoh demanding that they work without rest. Can I present to you that it's quite possible that the Sabbath remains a command to combat the culture and an internal pharaoh that exists in so many of us. An internal voice that drives me to work without rest. And I'll say it again, that busyness and significance are not supposed to be linked the, the way that they are for so many of us in this modern culture. You see, this is one of the things that would make God's people distinct and so very different from the rest of the world around them is that they trusted their God enough to jump off the hamster wheel and to rest and to be okay with that. And there's obedience in that and there's faith involved in that. There really is. For years, Lindsay and I, this was the, the tough choice that we had to make at times was it, for, for us to be able to make it in the San Diego housing market or whatever to just afford to live in San Diego. It meant that we were working, but it also meant that we had a side hustle moving constantly in order to make sure that we could even make our bills. And so the idea of, of taking a rest, we realized was going to be costly. And although we believed that God could provide for that seventh day, we knew that there were some things that we would inevitably go without that we could work a little extra in order to be able to afford or experience. But the trade-off became, hey, my health, personally, relationally, relationally, within our marriage, within our family and home, and the gift that this is meant to be to my soul is more, is more valuable, is worth more to me than, than just grinding all the time because I am not made to grind all the time. I'm created for a rhythm of work and of rest. Okay, second thing for you to chew on, and I'll move quickly through this, is that the Sabbath, it's a gift, not a curse or a weight. It's a gift, not a curse, nor a weight. In fact, it's precursed that we're introduced to this. Man's need for Sabbath precedes the fall and the law. Remember, Jesus says it so beautifully here in our passage. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. I think that behind the Sabbath command in the Old Testament lies that creative pattern that's hardwired into creation itself, a pattern of work and of rest, which means that even if the Sabbath mandate is viewed by you as no longer an obligation for you, it would still tell you that it's foolish for you to behave as if creation's hardwiring no longer exists. And that hardwiring tells me that I need that rhythm of work and of rest. God doesn't need a day off to rest and be refilled, but I am not God. And for me to choose to rest and be restored is me admitting with humility that that's true, that I'm not God. And then I need him. I had lunch with a friend this last week and he was telling me he's worked really hard in this new field, this new line of work he got into three or four years ago, where it was a hard career shift. And he's worked really hard to develop the skills that he needs to now become in a very good way, a very, very valuable employee to his employer and in his workplace, where they really appreciate the quality of work that he can do. And it's taken him a lot of work to get here. All of that is good and very admirable. But now they really feel it when he's not there. So now he feels the pressure to constantly be there. Now he's telling me, I feel apologetic about the idea of even taking time off because I'm needed now. And I fought so hard to get to this point of being needed and secure in my role. But for my friend, he works nights and, and a lot of weekends even in his field. And he's got a young family, which means that his time with his kids is very limited. And so I, I stopped my friend and we are friends. And so with a real friend, you're allowed to lovingly speak the truth. And I said, you know, 30 years from here, your employer is not going to be talking or caring about how diligent or how dedicated you were, or how much vacation you forego. 
But 30 years from now, your kids are still going to be talking about it, and they're going to care. And so you need to slow down. I need to slow down and reevaluate things in moments. It actually reminded me of a note I wrote myself a year ago when COVID first started. It was a book I was reading that was really making me think. And, and I remember writing in the margin of the book. I went and found it this week. And I, I wrote, there's only one Savior in the world, and it's not me. I know it's really profound. But then I wrote underneath it, I also need to remember that I'm loved by God as I am and that I don't need to strive to be admired by God or anyone else. And I need to remember how valuable I am and what I can accomplish with his help because this is his work. At some point, we have to step back and have those internal dialogues with ourselves. Remember, at least seven of Jesus' miracles were performed on the Sabbath. And, and I don't know if it was simply because that was the day that people congregated. I do know this for sure. Some of those miracles were intentionally on the Sabbath. And what I've seen in my own life is that God still does a deep, miraculous work on the Sabbath in those periods of rest. When I choose to follow that rhythm of intentionally fighting to rest, then God does deep work in my home and in my life, in my marriage. But it's a fight to do it, to rest. Which is a, a weird but very true thought, isn't it? That you actually have to fight to rest in our culture. It's true that you have to work really hard to rest, which sounds so weird. It's not even a new thought, it's actually a biblical thought. In Hebrews, the author of Hebrews, he writes about this. He says, there remains therefore a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest. And another translation, it says, labor for that rest. Labor to enter into that rest. I'm quoting from Hebrews 4. It's this beautiful imagery of your spiritual journey, of your life with Jesus, where you're brought out of slavery and brought into the promised land, which is not a picture of heaven, but of your Christian life. You're, you're walking with Jesus, and your walk with Jesus will not be free from challenges any more than, than the promised land was free from battles. In fact, there were more battles in the promised land than there were in the wilderness beforehand. Yet Christ now fights for you. This is his battle now. And so you are told to labor to enter into that rest. You have to fight to rest, not just your schedule, but your heart and your mind. While walking with Jesus, you have to labor, fight to rest. Listen, in my relationship and connection with Jesus, I'm offered a beautiful, lasting rest. And the experience of that rest is not about the geographical location you find yourself nor about the reality of your circumstances. It's all about the dwelling place of your mind. Which means that the things that keep us from experiencing rest are not financial pressure, are not the demands of a job. It's unbelief in our hearts that God can be God and care for us and will meet our needs, and we don't need to prove our... The things that keep us from true internal rest is unbelief. Because my experience of rest, it's not linked to a geographic location, nor is it really linked or even it's, it's not meant to be affected by my circumstances. It's all about the dwelling place of my mind. But I would, I would present to you that I think the majority of us as Americans, we self-medicate with busyness and noise in our life. That for many of us, our drug of choice is hardly a drug at all. It's 
just that we overclutter our lives with busyness and noise to distract and numb ourselves. I read a story or a study recently that said one in three adults have less than an hour of media silence a day. Another study said it this way, one in five people reported that they have less than 30 minutes of their day is quiet and calm. Why are we afraid of silence or afraid of, of what are we afraid of avoiding if we slow down that we're afraid we'll end up facing? The psalmist said we should be still and know that he is God. The rest that is meant to be the byproduct of choosing to be still, it's not some mental utopia, nor a place that like, oh, well, once you get to this phase, like reaching nirvana, you never depart from it. No, it's, it's my choice by faith to bring myself there to be with Jesus. And it's my faith in him that will keep me there in a state of rest because the Sabbath is a gift. It's not a weight or a curse. Okay, and quickly, the Sabbath, the third thing. The Sabbath, the purpose of it is about restoration. The Sabbath's purpose is about restoration, not vegetation. In Deuteronomy chapter 5, God will have Moses reiterate to his people that they should remember the Sabbath, and he said it this way, because you were slaves in Egypt, but you were delivered. Why were they to set aside the time with their families to, to take a Sabbath? Well, part of it was that the Sabbath was meant to be in a built-in rhythm and reminder to them that they have a Savior. That's, it's true for me, too, that it's a built-in rhythm in my life to remind me I have a Savior, that I'm not out here fending for myself. That I instead have a deliverer, that I have a provider, I have a father and a healer, a sustainer and a savior. For me yesterday, it's knowing that I'm, I, if I don't finish my message today, Saturday, and that was our family day that we looked ahead on the calendar. This is going to be our slow days of family. This will be our rest day. This will be our Sabbath. It was me knowing, okay, I'm going to have to get up very early tomorrow morning to finish this. And all day I'm dealing with the internal pressure of like, oh, I need to go finish this. I should just sneak away to my office, pull out my laptop. My wife's Sabbath nap happened yesterday while she was napping. I had that option. Can I sneak away, go and do my work? It wasn't that if I did that, if I snuck away and worked on my message, that, oh, no, I'm breaking the rules in some terrible way and God's disappointed. It's not that at all. It's that if I did that, I'd be perpetuating the messy narrative that already exists in my heart that's already in my head, that Trevor, this is all on you. You better do good this weekend, because if not, they're not coming back next week. That's all there is to it. <laughs> you, you still, you need to work hard to make this better. This is all on you. Get this done. If you're not done, do you know what it's going to be like to stand in front of these people and, and be even worse than you usually are and not know what you're going to say? You know, you, know, you want to know what that feels like? You want to feel that way? By not going back to my office, it was me preaching a message to my own heart that I'm no one's savior. And that I'm loved dearly by a God who will always stand by me and provide for me. And so I don't need to perpetuate those narratives by feeling like, no, 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 I need to always work. I need to always accomplish something. I need to always be on the grind. Listen, a day off is very different from a Sabbath, though. A day off is about catching up on all the things that you need to do, your laundry, your errands, etc. It's, it's you do all the work that you don't want to do because it's all the work you don't get paid for. That's what a day off is. <laughs> a Sabbath is about reflection and rest and restoration, not vegetation. I think the way that we observe the Sabbath should look and feel like a celebration of the goodness and the care of God, not merely the discipline of observing a mandated break in time. This is not like a mandated intermission in your week. I have a friend, he recently told me, he said, you know, I think I need to loosen up on my Sabbath observance. I think we're Sabbathing too hardcore. And, 
And I kind of chuckled and was like, what are you talking about? And he started explaining how strict and rigid they were at this time until this time. And, and absolutely nothing can go on. And no one else can be in our home. And no technology. And there are a lot of things that sound like good ideas, but very intense execution of them. And although I'd agree with my friend that a Sabbath probably shouldn't involve much of a to-do list, I do think that reflecting that, that we do on the goodness and the care of God for us should lift our spirits and feel more like a celebration than some strict religious observance that we're meant to uphold. But for most of us, we err on the opposite side of the spectrum from my friend. If we have a Sabbath that typically, typically turns into extreme inactivity and, and a bunch of Netflix binging. And listen, if, if Netflix and chill is going to be a part of you and your spouse's Sabbath routine, it's not a problem. It's just that Sabbath is not about vegging out. It's about filling back up. And I think scripture is clear that, that a Sabbath should involve reflection on the goodness of God and rest. And rest looks different for all of us. True restoration is doing the things that restore us. Things that restore your internal batteries and turn your heart's attention back to a good God who loves you and promises to care for you. That looks different for all of us. It looks different even for different stages of life for us. When I was single, I was in a rhythm of on my one day off a week that I had some friends that were all soft. We'd go get brunch together. We'd hang out and spend the day together. We'd talk about what we felt like God was doing in our lives. It was restoring to my soul. Once we were newlyweds for Lindsay and I, brunch, there's a rhythm here and a pattern. It's, it typically involves food, but we'd go out to brunch together. We'd slow down. We'd talk about what God was doing in our lives. We'd dream together about our future. That was what our Sabbath rest looked like. It, it looked like us talking about the goodness of God in our lives. Once we had kids, all of that was ruined. <laughs> I asked my wife this week, I said, what is your ideal Sabbath day? And she just stared off into the distance and said, I'm home alone. <laughs> the house is quiet. For us now, it's a family fun day where we know we're going to push all the work aside as much as we can to protect a, a fun time. It's Saturday morning pancakes that dad gets up and makes because mom does need physical rest. And, and it's time then where we have fun in the kitchen. We listen to mom's favorite music, some classic rock. And then we sit and have breakfast together. The kids get up and leave the table typically. And Lindsay and I have some time to sit together and reflect in some quiet over a cup of coffee and her having her tea and us be able to chat together. It's, it's us having a ton of fun throughout the day. It's, it's the farmer's market or the beach or the park and spending time together. And then in the evening, it's typically like a wiffle ball home run derby in the back. Yard and, and us slowing down just to thank God together that he provides for our family and that he's good. And that the whole week is stressful, but there's one day where we pause to remember that life's not about stress and pressure. Life in existence is about enjoying what God has given us and enjoying him and knowing him forever. Listen, over the years, it shifted and adjusted many different times. And I would tell you that we did such a lousy job for so long, but now Lindsay and I are in the rhythm of looking at each other and not just saying, hey, I need a break, but looking at each other sometimes and saying, hey, I can read on you and your attitude, your demeanor, whatever, her saying to me typically, Trevor, you probably should go surfing and having one of those days where you like, you know, surf in the morning with some friends, run on your own after that, have a quiet cup of coffee for you to get alone and read because she knows that $10 or $5 spent on coffee and a snack and a book after reading and re or after running and surfing, she knows that that $10 maybe that I'd spend and that three or four hours of time, she knows that does so much in my heart to realign my perspective in such a life-giving way that she knows we need to prioritize this. Listen, I don't think God asks us to pick up our cross and die to the things he's designed us to need, to love, and to enjoy that he created for us and enjoys us, enjoys watching us partake of those things. We choke the lives out of ourselves and we, we tap ourselves on the back and say, look at all that I'm willing to give up for my family, for my job, for whatever. When at some point in time, I think God slows us down and says, yeah, but remember me. And I said, you need a break. 
and to enjoy these things that I've given you, to recharge your batteries. Listen, here's the last thing, and, and I'm, I'm really done here. And that's that the Sabbath is not about disengaging from reality. It's intended to help us re-engage with the greater reality. That's the real point of Sabbath. It's not just disengaging with the reality that we live in so we can close our eyes to it. It's about re-engaging with a greater reality. Not turning off to the reality that this is a hard life. It's tuning into the reality that there's more to life than this. That we have heaven ahead of us. But also a God who loves us today, not based on our performance. And that that good God promises to care for us. That I can take a deep breath and then tell God about the things that are stressing me out. It's not vegetation, it's restoration, reflection, and realignment. That rest is life-giving, that, that God blessed the animals so that they could give more life. He blessed humans so that they give more life. And then he blessed the Sabbath because it's meant to give us more life. Listen, whatever you do on the Sabbath, it should give you a fresh perspective and creativity, maybe even some optimism, definitely some energy and a renewed sense of hope and peace in Jesus. But I'd finish this with this thought. It's, I think that our willingness to rest depends on what we think we'll find there. I read that a long time ago. It stuck with me. Our willingness to rest depends upon what we believe we'll find there. I'll tell you, I think what God intends you to find is not a what, but a who. That you'll find a savior. You'll find a healer, a provider, a sustainer, a friend, a counselor, the prince of peace, the God of all comfort. You'll find true rest for your weary soul. Separate from Jesus, you'll never find that true rest. But because I have Jesus, I'm meant to find it often. I'm meant to experience it again and again, over and over, each and every day. Because he's the Lord of the Sabbath. He is our rest. Buddha's dying words were strive without ceasing. Jesus' dying words were it is finished. It's completed. Choosing to Sabbath is meant to give the time and space to allow that statement to echo in my own heart. To echo in my own home. It's finished. Jesus' final words from the cross are meant to become Heaven, the Father's first pronouncement over me and you. Sabbath is slowing down enough to let those echo into our lives and homes.